Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. My guest today is Senior Portfolio Manager, CEO, and CIO, Chris Wallace. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. So, so Chris, today we're going to talk about 2019 uh, in retrospective. And, you know, th- th- when I was thinking about preparing for the podcast today, you know, a, a thought or a memory came to mind. Uh, you know, we had a conversation, um, it was either like late December or maybe early January um, of, of last year. And, you know, we were just talking about the sell-off that we saw in the fourth quarter. And I said, you know, it would be crazy, but we've got to be up 25% in 2019 to, to get back to all-time highs. And, and I, I don't know if we were joking or what we said. We were like, yeah, probably pretty unlikely, right? And, and then now here we are. You know, we blow through 30% on, on, a, on, a, on an S&P number. Um, and, yeah, we've reached all-time highs again. So, you know, one thing I thought that would be, um, would be helpful just to cover, you know, just a, a reminder of a few topics, big topics that we covered um, throughout 2019. And, and some of the ones that would, were jumping out to me as we were, were sketching this down was, um, you know, we were looking at quanti- quantitative tightening, um, you know, the systematic repricing of, of risk assets um, globally uh, lower, um, which drove the U.S. dollar higher uh, and causing a, a bit of a global economic slowdown, right? We had the U.S. equity markets uh, in January, entering January last year, um, very uneasy and on the tail end of a, over 20 plus percent uh, fourth quarter of 2018 drawdown. Um, you know, we had QE4 or, or whatever name that you prefer to, to, to use here, um, again, become a, become a piece, big piece of, of the conversation of, of 2019. Uh, we had a liquidity crisis that uh, you know, forced the Fed to inject liquidity into the financial markets in the fourth quarter. Um, and, and despite all of, all of that news, you know, we still finished up the year over, up, up over 30% uh, with valuations. At, at, I, would, you know, I think we're going to make the point here at, at a bit of extended levels. Yeah, no, that, that's right, Dan. That's a great summary. And as we've said, you know, over the last several years, liquidity drives markets. And so the Fed removed liquidity uh, from, the, from the marketplace, and that did drive the dollar higher, that given leverage levels around the world uh, and the increased deficit spending of our own government, you know, that just tightens up conditions for economic growth. It puts pressure on valuations. It makes levered investors uneasy, and they have an inability to hold positions. And so we saw that fall off in risk assets materially in that fourth quarter. And as has been consistent for now well over two decades, the Fed panics, they inject liquidity. Um, But some things definitely have changed for the longer term. And the bulk of the returns in 2019 are really reflective of multiple expansion and not necessarily earnings increases. So we do. We sit here today back at all-time highs for the S&P. It's important we don't see all-time highs around the world by any stretch. And even domestically, small caps still have not recovered from their peaks in 2018. You know, that's good. And, and so I think that's a, an easy transition to start talking about, you know, where, where are we today, you know, as, as we roll into 2020? And, you know, as you just, you know, someone mentioned, you know, the, the global equity markets, right, they've very much rallied on the back of, you know, aggressive rate cuts and, and hikes, uh, excuse me, rate cuts, yeah. um, but more importantly, liquidity injections by global central banks. Um, and these are signaling a reflection higher um, in economic activity and earnings growth. Um, but is, do you think this, this market signal is consistent with underlying economic uh, leading indicators? Yeah, it, what I would tell you is it's an interesting path we're on right now in that we're following the path of two scenarios. It could be a recessionary path or it could be an economic slowdown that kind of resets itself and accelerates. And the interesting thing is we're actually going to have the answer as to what path we're moving down because we're kind of at the T in the road right now within this first quarter. Um, So when we look at kind of the underlying economic trends, 
it's absolutely consistent with the economic data that equity markets bottomed in the you know, late third, early fourth quarter of 2019 and began to recover. Um, it, it, and it's also, I, mean, I think that recovery was exacerbated by the you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that the Fed injected into the marketplace as well. Uh, so the market has discounted a pretty steep recovery um, in earnings and in activity. Um, our leading indicators would indicate by different regions that some of those may be valid, some of those may be materially ahead of themselves, so we are getting some valuation gaps here. Um, and when you look specifically at some of the regions, what I would say is the U.S. has not bottomed. Um, when you look at the longer leading indicators, it indicates it probably should. Uh, but over the near term, we're going to continue to see a slowdown. Uh, we're going to see that in the employment data is going to continue to slow. We're not seeing an inflection higher there. And in fact, if you look at kind of the four-week moving average of jobless claims, they're starting to break out to higher levels. Um, but when we look at other regions in the world, you know, there's very different indicators uh, kind of on a go-forward basis. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear about that. So, you know, we, we mostly focus most of uh, you know, the bulk of our conversations uh, on U.S. domestic, but love to hear your thoughts uh, just briefly on, you know, Europe, Asia, and, and really yeah. uh, emerging markets, I think, are, are an interesting place to look. Yeah, and as we kind of mentioned, I, I think we talked about this in the third quarter or the fourth quarter, where we were already seeing stability within Europe. So we were starting to see European economies stabilize and inflect higher. Uh, and we were hopeful that was going to spread out, which it seems to have done. It spread it in, it, it's moved on to Asia um, with both South Korea and Taiwan bottoming and moving higher. Uh, China's economic activity seems to have stabilized. Again, you know, where there was great hope with the liquidity injections in the first quarter of 19 that we were going to see a big reacceleration re in China and that was going to spread elsewhere. Um, that's not going to be in the cards. But we are seeing ex-U.S. stability. We're seeing modest inflections higher, but that can be consistent with a pull forward ahead of China's tariff implementation. Um, it can be consistent with, hey, you know, we've been through a destocking, we've been through a bit of a deleveraging phase, and now we have stability. But what we're not seeing anywhere is a big reacceleration. Um, and so that's kind of the risk in the marketplace is certain areas and certain sectors are pricing in a big reacceleration, others are not. And where we're pricing in that reacceleration, if it doesn't come through in 2020, uh, we're going to see some material downside. No, that's great. And I know we're not huge into predictions here. Um, you know, we like to talk about what's what's actually happening. But um, I might ask you a, a couple here sure. about what's lying ahead for 2020. And you know, I think maybe the key one is, is really you know what what kind of um, you know or maybe more set the expectation of what kind of a future return would a U.S. equity investor expect from here, right? So let's yeah. just talk about you know, kind of that medium to, to long-term basis, you know, the, the yeah, three yeah, to yeah. 10 years. And, and I think that's the most important question. I, I mean, 2020, we can get excited about, you know, following a, as big a year as we had, and we can look at history and say, oh, it could be up uh, even further, or, you know, it can roll over and need to digest these gains. I don't think that's the point. If you're a U.S. equity investor, the question is, and, and this is something we don't have to predict. We know this based on facts. If we just look at today's valuations, if you allocate capital to the broad indices, 
for the next 10 years, you should probably expect a return, including your dividend, of 0 to 5%, which is very modest. Um, and when you layer in kind of where we are with some of the longer-term cycles and pension deficits and all of those factors, um, it's going to create pressures over this decade. Uh, and that, that's kind of what we should expect. I mean, given the returns we've seen over the last 10 years and how broad-based and how attractive they've been, they should be lower on a go-forward basis. Chris, you know, uh, 0 to 5% returns, uh, I, I don't think after that decade we've just gone through is going to get too many people excited. Uh, so I guess you know, the next follow-up question there is, you know, really, what, what are the key risks that you see today um, within U.S. equities? Yeah, and, and the key risk in 2020 is just where we are in the market cycle and the economic cycle. We know things are extended, and that doesn't mean by definition you have to have a recession far from it. Um, and, and recessions in the past have been driven by Fed action, tightening up liquidity conditions, triggering losses, and triggering those excesses. And the good news is, even if we did have a recession, given the modest expansion we've had, it would probably be fairly modest from an economic standpoint, much more material, though, uh, as it repriced risk assets. Um, but the big risk for 2020 is companies have, have kind of taken the easy actions to maintain growth and easy actions to maintain profitability. We've already moved on to the part of the cycle where you start kind of pulling back and and reducing investment spending and leveraging up the balance sheet and relying on financial engineering, be it M&A or share repurchases. So if we don't see a top-line reacceleration in the first half of 2020, I would expect to see layoffs. Um, and as we mentioned, you know, the four-week moving average for jobs, losses are starting to pick up. All those indicators are there that are indicating that's the lever that management teams are going to go to, and they're saying as much. Um, and if that happens, it becomes a little bit pro-cyclical to the downside. You'd see a back off of share repurchases. And again, a lot of this is a repricing. Uh, if we look at kind of earnings expectations for the S&P 500 for 2020, you know, up high single digits, the reality is best case, maybe we're half that level. Um, and that may force a little bit of multiple compression, but I suspect the market already is skeptical of the, the earnings growth. Uh, but as I said, we're going to get a lot of these answers here fairly quickly. You know, I, I, I've got to say, you know, one thing that, that stood out with your answer there, um, or I guess that, you, that, that, uh, that stood out for not being included, is a 2020 election. Um, so, you know, do you find that the election is, is not a risk or, or maybe the inverse of that? Do you, do you find it as an opportunity for the equity market? Yeah, you know, I'm, as I've mentioned in the past, I'm fairly skeptical that, that politics in an election is really going to have a significant effect on the broader averages one way or the other. It's great for narratives. They will assign stock price movement and sector movement to shifts in polls and who wins and who doesn't. But the reality is no matter who wins or loses, the structural pressures that exist and the limited policy choices they have, it's just not going to be uh, significantly different no matter what party controls various parts of Congress or who sits in the executive branch. So in that sense, I don't think it's going to be a material issue. 
It'll create volatility. It'll be great for headlines. It'll be great for the talking heads to keep their jobs. But the reality is uh, there's just not that many choices longer term. No, that's an, that's an interesting take. Uh, but if we, we shift it outside the U.S., you know, for you know, the, the, the short term here, you know, is there any areas of particular interest for you or the firm, um, you know, uh, ex-U.S. investing? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When we look at kind of outside of the U.S., valuations are clearly better. There's just no doubt about that. Now, we can argue whether the, the growth and the earnings growth and uh, the dynamics are such that they should improve. Uh, but when I look at kind of areas in the developed world in the small cap space outside of the U.S., the supply chains, the distribution channels are much less consolidated. Uh, it very much looks like our U.S. small cap market did, you know, 15 years ago, and the valuations are fairly attractive. Um, it does mean, you know, we can't have a, a, a European banking issue. We need credit continue to flow. We need the liquidity to be there. But if there's anything we should take away at this stage, uh, the central banks are all in. I don't think we're going to have an issue from lack of liquidity. If anything, you know, we'll have unintended consequences from too much liquidity. Uh, so there's no doubt that outside of the U.S. and or uh, companies that benefit from a weakening dollar inside the U.S. is probably a, a better opportunity set overall. Yeah, that's, I think that's a really interesting link looking at international small cap today uh, and comparing it to you know, U.S. small cap of you know, 15 or 20 years ago. So yeah, yeah. Very, very interesting there. Um, so, you know, as you started touching on this a little bit, but if I'm looking at, you know, 2020 and beyond, you know, what do you think some of the, the, the key pressure points or, or, or macroeconomic factors um, that would, you know, continue to create risk or, or create additional risk um, or, again, flip side opportunities for investors? Yeah, I, I think this is slowly going to be um, a lot of themes that kind of come out over the next 10 years. One, I think, is going to be forefront in 2020, and that is we shouldn't even have to guess at this. This is a fact. Our central bank is funding our federal deficits. Uh, they, are, they are doing it in a manner and calling it a repo issue, but there's no question as to how um, the, what the ultimate result is. The other thing is they haven't fixed it. Um, the way the plumbing works, uh, the method they're using is inefficient at best. Uh, and so in my mind, there may be fits and starts with how much liquidity the central bank is providing, but the Fed's going to continue QE until either they slash interest rates to get closer in line with the rest of the world, the rest of the world raises rates to get closer in line with us, or the U.S. dollar falls sufficiently that foreign investors are incented to buy U.S. treasuries on a hedge basis. You know, we have over $11 trillion of treasuries to roll in the next 12 months. Uh, and at the same time, government deficits are going to widen, and they're going to continue to widen for the foreseeable future. And that means we need to fund those in some manner or suffer a severe economic contraction, which uh, I don't think any central bank is willing to do. So, you know, I... The monetization of debt is here and now. We're going to call it a lot of things, but the Fed has was at the fork in the road, and they could choose between, uh, you know, controlling the the price of money or the quantity. They chose price, and therefore they've given up on quantity. And we're going to deal with the unintended consequences of that over the next decade. 
Well, let's talk about uh, another pressure point, right? And it's um, you know that's one that's that's very glaring. Uh, anytime you flip on uh, the news, it's uh, you know social liabilities, right? And and retirement yeah. costs, funding pressures. You know, so you know if, I, if I'm thinking about businesses uh, today, you know, are these going to be net negative for earnings? And then free, uh, the, the second part of that question is. Um, in addition to discretionary spending. Yeah, no, look, there is no long-term as it relates to these obligations. You know, when I got in the business 20 years ago, it was, oh, that's you know two decades away. We don't need to worry about it. It's here and now. Um, and so it does mean either more monetization and therefore more unintended consequences or structural changes to entitlements um, or reductions in investing, increases in taxes, but without significant productivity gains and without significant innovation that creates enough economic wealth to tax and deal with these deficits, uh, then on the margin throughout the, the decade, there's going to be rising pressure both politically and economically, and those elements aren't necessarily good for earnings. They're not good for discretionary spending, uh, and it's going to pressure risk assets. All right. Uh, so, you know, as, as we're entering a new decade, right, and I, and I look back at the decade we're, we're exiting here, you know, China's been, you know, I would argue the, the single largest driving force um, of economic growth globally over the last, uh, you know, last 10 years. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, we're of the belief that, you know, this, they will not be nearly as material of a factor going forward. Would you, could you please uh, expand on that a bit? Yeah. And, and it doesn't mean, you know, a China collapse or anything like that. It's just rate of change. And, and China's dealing with its own internal imbalances. Its demographics have finally caught up with it in the second half of, of the last decade. Um, and so when they've had this credit-driven approach to economic activity, they've kind of hit a liquidity wall. It just requires so much debt to generate any incremental growth. And it's been their economic growth that's probably responsible for 40% of global growth in the last decade, but it also fed growth through the rest of emerging markets. So I do think, you know, we're entering a period where the the globe's going to struggle for what that that economic driver is, what that growth driver is, and it's just going to be a matter of sorting through real opportunities versus kind of the way we viewed the world in the past. And so maybe we'll, we'll wrap up with, you know, or if I so long I, I can keep you here for, but you know, one thing that we have talked about, um, you know, internally, I don't know if we've discussed on on the podcast, uh, is addressing a, or a political uh, approach addressing climate change and decarbonization, um, and you know how is that going to impair uh, global economic development and risk assets? Uh, you know, on one hand, I can understand the the nobility of their efforts, but right. in reality, as you look at businesses and and right. uh, industries, they will be um, challenged. Yeah, yeah. There's no question that the globe's decided that decarbonization and climate change is a significant threat and needs to be addressed in the next decade in material fashion, and and it does. Uh, the question is how we're going to do it. And so far, the choices we've made have been political, and they're wholly insufficient. Uh, there's just too much of an investment that needs to be had. There needs to be consideration taken into how you reduce the carbon footprint, uh, what the economic implications of, of that are, and what's the political reality of being able to implement a solution. Uh, and it's my own opinion that it's going to take a lot more cooperation 
with the existing energy industry and infrastructure that's in place. And it's naive to think we're just going to jump into a renewables world um, and it's all, you know, it's not going to work. It's just not the way it's going to play out. We can do that. It has severe economic implications for the developing world and for the developed world, for that matter. And geopolitically, I think it's probably unsustainable. And the sooner we begin to cooperate and really deal with and drive some economic solutions and help this transition, the much greater probability of success in the end. Um, and again, it would be much better for risk assets in general. Great. Well, Chris, thank you. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up. And you know, it's been it's been a really uh, exciting 2019. I've very very much enjoyed you know all of our conversations in here, um, and hopefully the audience has as well. And um, look forward to many more in 2020. Thank you, Dan. The views, information, and or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Von Nelson and its employees. Von Nelson does not verify and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast, or any podcast in the series, does not constitute professional investment advice or services, and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast are the property of Von Nelson and, or used by Von Nelson with permission and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws.